0: Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the LSE. I'm Denise Costavichua. I'm a senior lecturer in the government department. It is my great pleasure to introduce uh, our tonight's speaker, Richard Kaplan, professor of international relations and official fellow of Lineker College, Oxford. And we are really delighted that Professor Kaplan could come to kick off actually two series of events of two research hubs here at the LSE. One is a conflict research group. This is a a newly established multidisciplinary group that gathers uh, scholars uh, here at the LSE who are interested in conflict and post-conflict issues. And tonight, uh, we are joining forces with BC, which is a unit uh, at the European Institute at the LSE which gathers scholars and practitioners with interest in Southeast Europe. Professor Kaplan studies international organization and conflict management. Uh, he's uh, the author of numerous books, articles, and policy publications. Among these are Governance of war on Territories by Oxford University Press, and Europe and the Recognition of New States in Yugoslavia by Cambridge University Press. And as a way of introduction, I cannot say uh, uh, or miss saying one thing. That is uh, uh, something that all of us working in this field can appreciate. Professor Kaplan's research and work has been able to provide timely, academic, and rigorous analysis of very fast-moving issues of international intervention (coughs) and uh, conflict resolution. So for instance, his book uh, on international governance on war and territories has been an invaluable resource both to practitioners and scholars who are trying to make sense of this sort of unprecedented <coughs> comprehensive engagement of ex- external actors in state building. So tonight, I think he continues in that vein and he addresses a very topical issue and that is the issue of exit. So not only is the question of how you enter and what you do in these areas, but actually it really matters what happens when you exit. So um, the title of his talk is Exit Strategies and Lessons (coughs) Learned from the Balkans to Afghanistan. And this lecture tonight draws on the international (coughs) research project that he is directing, which is entitled Exit Strategies and Peace Consolidation. Uh, Professor Kaplan will talk for about 40 minutes and he has kindly agreed to take questions from the audience at the end of his talk. And again, thank you very much for accepting the invitation.
1: Thank you, Linisa, for that kind introduction. It's a genuine pleasure and a great honor to be invited to the LSE and to have this opportunity to join friends, colleagues, and guests this evening in in a discussion about some of the critical issues of the day. We live in an age that has seen and continues to see an extraordinary level of intervention by states in the so-called sovereign affairs of other states. I say so-called because this is also a period that has witnessed a remarkable evolution in the meaning of sovereignty, from sovereignty as a form of protection against interference, which it remains, to sovereignty as a a set of enforceable obligations, and the emphasis here is on enforceable, which it has also always been, but never to quite the same degree as it is today. This shifting notion of sovereignty is in large part what has facilitated the ongoing NATO intervention in (coughs) Libya, an intervention that would have been difficult, if not impossible, to imagine being carried out on humanitarian grounds 20 or so years ago. Indeed, humanitarian crises, actual or imminent, have been invoked as threats to international peace and security, and thus grounds for coercive actions under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter (coughs) in the cases of Afghanistan, Bosnia and Herzegovina, East Timor, Haiti, Iraq, Rwanda, Somalia, Sudan, and the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia to mention just a few of the cases. This represents an extraordinary, and in some respects, an an unprecedented level of intervention. But the new interventionism to which I'm referring to is not limited to coercive measures against sovereign states. I'm also referring to the large number of consensual interventions in fragile states, such as Burundi, Sierra Leone, (coughs) Guinea-Bissau, Central African Republic, Guinea and Liberia, all six of them states that are on the agenda of the newly established UN Peacebuilding Commission at their government's request. Now what these states all have in common is that they've been or are currently the targets, if I may put it that way, of extensive peace and state building operations that in many of these cases represent continuing intervention, international engagement, long after any military intervention or peacekeeping operation that's been conducted there. And this brings me to the the issue at the heart of tonight's lecture. In the past interveners have generally come and gone, apart from cases of extended military occupation. But even military occupations have not for the most part been transformative in nature, with the exception of the allied occupations of enemy territories, that is Germany, Austria, Japan, the various externally prompted regime changes, especially during the Cold War, for instance, in Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Grenada, and, m- and the most recent exception, the military occupation of Iraq. Today, by contrast, interventions are often followed by or are concomitant with very extensive peace and state-building efforts, so much so that in a few cases, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Kosovo and East Timor, international organizations have been in effect the surrogate sovereigns. Now there are a number of reasons for this development that I'm describing. One is the recognition that states that intervene militarily have a responsibility to rebuild. Colin Powell, U.S. Secretary of State under George Bush, referred to this as the Pottery Barn Principle. You break it, you buy it. In actual fact, it turns out Pottery Barn is more forgiving than that, but this, this was the, the, the concept that uh, uh, underpinned his approach. Similarly, the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, ISIS, expressed a similar view in its 2001 report to the UN Secretary General when it wrote, if military action is taken because of a breakdown or abdication of a state's own capacity and authority in discharging its responsibility to protect, there should be a genuine commitment to helping to build a durable peace and promoting good governance and sustainable development. In other words, the Commission stated, the responsibility to protect implies the responsibility not just to prevent and react, but to follow through and rebuild. So there's a normative basis for these extensive peace and state building efforts. That is, we owe it to the people in whose state or territory we've intervened. Another related reason is a more (coughs) pragmatic one. A recognition that fragile and or post-conflict states often require extensive assistance to ensure against the occurrence or recurrence of fighting. In other words, it's a recognition that the establishment of a stable peace after violent conflict requires or at least may benefit from continued and substantial international involvement. This combined reasoning, normative and pragmatic, was evident in Tony Blair's famous Chicago speech during the NATO campaign against Yugoslavia, when in April 1999 he declared, in the past we talked too much of exit strategies, but having made a commitment, we cannot simply walk away once the fight is over. But I'd argue in fact that we haven't talked enough, or at least not thought enough, about exit strategies. And it's become all the more imperative because the emphasis in both practice and theory has been on getting in and fixing failed states, to quote a well-known book on the subject, but not enough on getting out. I need to clarify that last point because in one sense, there's plenty of talk about getting out. You read about it all the time in the papers, especially when the going gets tough, as has been the case at times in Iraq and Afghanistan. But talk about exit strategies (coughs) at these moments is often fundamentally about cutting one's losses. My point is that policy in this area generally has been more ad hoc than it has been carefully thought out. And in some ways, it's not surprising, given that there's little explicit discussion of exit strategies and official publications expounding military doctrine. U.S. military doctrine focuses instead on what it calls termination criteria, that is, and now I'm quoting, the specified standards that must be met before a joint operation can be concluded and on end states, the required conditions that when achieved attain the strategic and political objectives. The United Nations has not developed doctrine or guidance with respect to exit strategy either. Thus, while all state-building operations are conceived with the termination of the operation in mind, that's to say, no state-building operation is intended to endure indefinitely, even if a number of operations in actual practice have been of long duration. In many, if not most cases, in actual practice, the the operations have been conducted without well-considered exit strategies. Before we send our troops into a foreign country, we should know how and when we're going to get them out. And that's Anthony Lake, Clinton's National Security Advisor, speaking in 1996, two years after the precipitated withdrawal of US forces from Somalia and just before deploying U.S. troops to Bosnia and Herzegovina. Now, despite the forcefulness of this statement, rarely has such a requirement been met by the United States or any other government or international organization. Of course, planning for exit as precisely as Lake's comments would suggest is difficult, if not impossible, as the Clinton administration itself would discover in Bosnia and Herzegovina in a very short time. No one can foresee the... The circumstances that will obtain and the course adjustments that they may necessitate once an operation has been launched. If devising exit strategies is a challenge for all major interventions, it's a particularly difficult challenge <coughs> for state building operations that entail extensive external support for or control of the principal governance functions of a state or territory. Given the scope of the authority that external parties engaged in state building may exercise, and the anarchical conditions that often prevail in the states or territories under their control, the choices available to international agents regarding exit are frequently suboptimal. On the one hand, the withdrawal of international actors may appear, may appear to be premature, risking to, to leave behind weak local institutions and unresolved conflicts, On the other hand, continued external control threatens to alienate the domestic population and inhibit the development of autonomous (coughs) governance capacity that's vital to the state's or territory's viability ultimately. For US forces in post-Saddam Iraq, seeking to balance the need for stability against growing impatience and active resistance on the part of significant sectors of the population, the transfer of power proved to be one of the most contentious issues. But difficult though planning for successful exit may be, this is not to say that more informed planning for exit is impossible. It's useful to begin with a clarification of the term exit, self-evident though the meaning may seem to be. An exit is not a single moment or event. It's best understood as a process of transition, even though that notion hasn't always been reflected in practice. For a long time, for instance, there's been a tendency to treat multi-party elections as the culminating point of international involvement in a conflict. This was the case with respect to Angola, where UN organized elections in 1992 marked the high-water mark for UN engagement in that war-torn state. The elections prompted the renewal of armed conflict when one of the parties to the conflict refused to accept the outcome, and the United Nations was not at all prepared for that eventuality. our Elections can have a useful <coughs> part to play in exit strategies, but they shouldn't represent the culmination of international involvement, if the interest is in a sustainable piece. I think it's fair to say that governments and international organizations engaged in state building, however, have generally learned that lesson. So exit's best understood as a process of transition. Now transition can be from one principal operation to another, for instance, from a predominantly humanitarian or peacekeeping operation to a growing emphasis on peace building and recovery. Or it can be a handover of responsibility from international agents to their national counterparts as critical national capacities are established. While an exit may lead to the withdrawal of a particular international agent (coughs) or agents, UN peacekeepers, for instance, it doesn't necessarily mark the end of all international involvement. I want to come back to this point uh, towards the end. External parties may often will and almost certainly should continue to be engaged in peace and state building long after an operation is formally ended. An exit strategy we can say then is a plan for disengaging and ultimately withdrawing from a state or territory ideally having attained the goals that inspired international involvement originally. If the goals have been attained, an exit strategy may envision follow-on measures to consolidate the gains, a successor operation perhaps, such as the UN mission in support of East Timor, or a monitoring role for a regional organization, such as the OSCE in relation to Eastern Slavonia, following the UN transitional administration there. However, if the goals have not been attained, and it's concluded cannot be attained, then a different set of considerations will govern the formulation of an exit strategy. If there have been partial gains, are these gains worth preserving, and if so, how can that be achieved? If there are reputational costs associated with exit, such as a perceived (coughs) loss of credibility, how is the process to be managed in such a way that these can be contained? And if exit will leave others to pick up the pieces, How can exit be uh, accomplished without leaving the others high and dry? Now, as these considerations suggest, exit isn't merely a technical matter to be accomplished ideally when requirements for sustainability have been achieved. It's also a political matter, the pace of which may be determined by a host of domestic and international factors that may have little or nothing to do with the achievement of sustainable outcomes. These political constraints, we can also add organizational constraints, are extremely important to bear in mind, not just for exit strategies, but also for state building more generally. Now let me go back to what I just said about exit as a process rather than a single moment or event. There are two subsidiary observations that follow from that one. First, as a process, exit is inextricably linked to entry. An entry strategy will typically envisage a particular end state. When it doesn't, as is the case with Kosovo, It creates serious difficulties for the formulation of an exit strategy for the simple reason that it's difficult, if not impossible, to plot a strategy for transition when you don't know what you're transiting to. Planning for exit may and arguably should commence even before the initiation of an operation insofar as it needs to be clear from the outset what the targets will uh, will be that have to be met and what strategies and resources will be required to meet them so that international commitments can be scaled back ultimately in a sustainable manner. Effective planning for exit also entails continual reevaluation of goals and assessment of progress towards them. Do the original objectives still support the broad strategic goals of the mission? Have new or unanticipated threats to a stable peace emerged, for instance external security challenges or, or tensions within the population? that require the articulation of new or altered objectives, has available implementing capacity nationally and internationally changed? And (coughs) what implications does that have for meeting an operations objectives and achieving a sustainable exit? A clear roadmap to an exit at the start of an operation obviously isn't realistic because circumstances will evolve often in unanticipated ways. But it is important, therefore, to rethink the exit strategy continually. Now another reason why it's important to regard exit as a process of transition is is because state building operations are generally complex operations and insofar as it's not possible to deal with all aspects of state building concurrently, exits likely to take place in stages with different actors scaling back and withdrawing at different times. Peacekeepers may depart as development workers arrive. Careful consideration needs to be given therefore to managing transitions within these operations, as well as exiting from them. This has been proved to be difficult uh, to achieve not only between organizations, but also within the same organization, as with the the United Nations. Now, for that matter, exit will not necessarily mark the end of all international involvement in state building. There may be further international engagement and third party influence long after the departure of the, the formal military and civilian organizations. Focusing solely on the termination of formal international authority structures ignores the reality of the likely continued intervention and exercise of power by outside actors in post-conflict territories and the role that they can play in peace consolidation. So through its accession process, for instance, the European Union has exerted a significant ongoing influence on the pace and character of post-conflict state building, in the Western Balkans, notably uh, Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Macedonia, and and Kosovo. There's growing awareness, however, of the importance of more systematic follow-on measures that can and should be taken in the wake of exit to reinforce post-conflict state-building achievements or, in the event of a failure to complete a mandate, to mitigate the effects of adverse developments. A number of operations have seen the adoption of such measures, Sierra Leone, and East Timor, which I mentioned already, were both home to major UN post-conflict state building operations that, upon termination, were followed by successor (coughs) UN missions. In the case of Sierra Leone, the mission played a critical role in peace consolidation. In the case of East Timor, the mission didn't prevent the recurrence of violence in 2006, but it arguably facilitated the rapid deployment of additional peacekeepers to that troubled state when conflict reignited. Recognition of the need for systematic follow-on measures is also reflected in the recently created UN Peacebuilding Commission and its associated bodies, although the PBC value added hasn't yet been fully realized. Now, there are several factors that may impede the achievement of a successful exit. The first arises from the fact that exit strategies are, to a considerable extent, path-dependent. A good exit strategy depends on good entrance and intermediate strategies. If there have been major deficiencies in the design or execution of the operation, leaving aside how feasible state building may actually be in a given case, an exit strategy will be unable to compensate for those deficiencies easily or at all. The second factor relates to something I said earlier, that state building is not a a process whose success depends wholly on meeting technical administrative challenges. Such a view ignores the salience of political factors at both the national and international levels and the extent to which these may have a bearing on the timing and nature of exits. In some cases, local pressures for a more rapid transfer of authority to national actors have resulted in an accelerated transition for which the country, in effect, was not adequately equipped. In both East Timor and Iraq, for instance, growing frustration and patience, with the international authorities, led to a a highly compressed process process of political transition. In other cases, pressures from troop-contributing countries for burden relief have resulted in a premature withdrawal of forces that compromised a fragile peace. In Sierra Leone, for instance, budgetary pressures played a decisive role in establishing Nigeria's timetable for exit when ECOWAS was keeping the peace there, while in East Timor, Member States rejected appeals from the UN Secretary General to slow the pace of peacekeeping uh, troop withdrawal. A longer time frame, however, is not necessarily the the solution either. In the case of Bosnia and Herzegovina, the continuing international presence has arguably arguably been a factor contributing to dependency, thus inhibiting the emergence of autonomous governance there. And the critical question is whether in these and other cases, the ground could have been better prepared if international policies had been designed and implemented with greater knowledge of and attention to local needs and sensibilities. Other factors may also be an impediment to a successful exit. The failure to achieve a, a durable political settlement may produce a peace so fragile that it will be unable to sustain itself without the <coughs> constraining effects of an ongoing international presence. Exit under these conditions can trigger the reignition of violent conflict. Similarly, Local buy-in to an exit strategy may be limited, especially if that strategy entails a contested transfer of power and thus will also imperil the peace. Also, regional powers may not support the arrangements that an exit will leave behind. This has been the concern about Iran with respect to Iraq and Pakistan with respect to Afghanistan recently. For all these reasons, some form of strategic overwatch May be advisable that will facilitate the redeployment of peacekeepers and civilian advisors in the event of a a threatened or actual collapse of the peace. So, these are some of the factors that can impede the achievement of a successful exit. There are also a number of factors that uh, can contribute to a successful exit. Many of these are coterminous with the successful execution of an appropriately designed mandate. In other words, The grounds for a success-based exit can be seen in the accomplishment of key elements of a mission's mandate, but beyond successful implementation of an operation's mandate, one important factor of success is a coincidence of interests among the parties to a conflict. When all parties are working towards common goals and objectives, the outcome achieved at the time of exit is likely to enjoy wide support, thus minimizing one risk factor associated with renewed conflict. Germany and Japan after World War II, Mozambique and Sierra Leone more more recently, are cases where a convergence of interests among all parties, national and international, helped to sustain the peace following the downsizing and exit of international forces. The prior existence existence of a functioning state is another factor that enhances the prospects for successful exit. (coughs) Germany, Japan and Austria were all states prior to the war with effective administrations and advanced industrial economies and were governed by the rule of law. In these cases, the challenge was precisely to rebuild the war-torn state, subject of course to, to modification. If exit didn't occur sooner in these cases, it was largely because of the pivotal role of these countries in the Cold War and not because of inadequate progress in state building. In many other cases, the objective has been to build a state after conflict or or comparable trauma, where previously there had been a weak or arguably failed state, a far more daunting challenge. In some of these cases, the magnitude of the challenge will be so great that exit may either be an illusion, as with Haiti, which has seen seven missions, seven UN missions, in little more than a decade, or it may be predicated not on success, but on the more modest achievement of an improved state of affairs. A continuing troop presence is another factor that may contribute to a successful exit. This is consistent with the findings of my colleague Paul Collier and his associates on the basis of their analysis of a large number of post-conflict situations. To the extent that a continuing troop presence encourages post-conflict states to reduce their military expenditure, Collier and associates found that it will significantly decrease the risk of renewed conflict, Additionally, they found that a continuing international true presence in the form of of peacekeepers, for instance, may deter the outbreak of rebellion. These findings are also consistent with what I said earlier about the importance of post-exit follow-on measures. Now, there's no single recipe for exit, but any successful exit strategy will require sound knowledge of the challenges to a sustainable peace throughout the course of an operation. For this reason, it's important for operations to develop meaningful measures of progress to inform transitional and exit planning. State-building missions have made some progress uh, in this regard. The UN mission in Sierra Leone, UNAMSIL, was the first UN peace support operation to use benchmarks and employed them effectively to guide its troop drawdown. The mission stressed the importance of pegging the withdrawal of the peacekeeping presence to benchmarks based on the government's capacity to maintain external and internal security without international assistance. Now, that may seem like a no-brainer, but the simple truth is that for all these years, and even today, planning for transition and exit is not governed by any systematic assessments of progress towards satisfying the requirements for a sustainable peace. Now, what does all this tell us about Afghanistan specifically? I have to confess, I'm not an Afghanistan expert. And I'm even only highlighting Afghanistan now because it was given some prominence in the publicity for this lecture. But uh, I'll, in closing, I'll venture a few brief observations that are relevant to Afghanistan specifically. The US and its coalition partners are engaged in a, in a drawdown of troops. Clearly, the original goals of the coalition, <coughs> the defeat of the Taliban, the establishment of a capable and legitimate Afghan government, economic regeneration, these goals haven't been achieved. As a result, even assuming that the Afghan security forces, the army and police in particular, can maintain security in key areas, not all areas, key areas of the country. And that's a big assumption. But even assuming this, there will still be the need for an international military presence for at least five more years. That could be a UN peacekeeping force, 20 to 30,000 strong, led by Turkey, perhaps, or more likely, because of the robustness of the operations that may be required, a US so-called residual force of anywhere from 20 to 40,000 soldiers. That's my first point. Exit will require continue, a continued international military presence. Second, <coughs> A a successful exit strategy (coughs) will require the support of key regional actors in at least two respects. Their their cooperation will be required to work towards further stabilization of Afghanistan, and Pakistan's uh, support is critical here. The cooperation of regional states will also be required to promote regional economic integration, which would benefit not just Afghanistan, but also Afghanistan's neighbors. Increasing regional trade would open up new sources of raw material, energy, and agricultural uh, products for a number of states in the region. And that's the thinking behind the new Silk Road Initiative that was launched with much fanfare at the end of September. I don't doubt that regional economic cooperation could be of great value. It's an approach that's been pursued with some success in in the Western Balkans, but I also don't underestimate the (coughs) obstacles to achieving it. And yet, if Afghanistan's economic prospects don't improve, it's difficult to see how peace can be sustained. Now, in closing, I want to stress that the the foregoing represents just some, certainly not all, of the lessons that can be drawn from the experiences of state building from the Balkans to Afghanistan. If nothing else, they serve to demonstrate that attempts to plan for exit are not entirely (coughs) misguided, as much of the literature will tell you it is. To a large degree, of course, state building is an art. It's not a science. But that doesn't mean that exits have to be uh, entirely hostage to fortune. A lot's been written about, what the, um, about the uncertainty and ambiguity that plague planning in wartime, what the, the Prussian military analyst um, Karl von Clausewitz referred to as the fog of war but as recent and historic experiences demonstrate, the fog of peace at times may be no less opaque. Moreover, in some respects, the stakes may be just as high, given that between one-third and one-half, depending on how you count these things, of all violent conflicts reignite within five years of the establishment of 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 a peace. The importance, therefore, of understanding the dynamics of conflict transformation, including the requirements for the maintenance of peace cannot be overstated. If you agree, I hope you will. I invite you to look at uh, my book on the subject based on this project when it appears next year by um, Oxford University Press. Thank you very much for your attention.
0: Thank you very much. and. Uh we will now invite uh, questions for the, from the audience. Uh, we'll have rowing mics, and I'll kindly ask you to introduce yourself first, and then ask the question. Let's do a gentleman here. Very much.
2: Um, thank you very much. Um, I'm a governor of a local school, a member of the public. Um, I will thank you very much, Professor, for a really comprehensive um, discussion of exit strategies. Um, There are one or two factors that um, perhaps um, could be included um, in your discussion and in a discussion of any exit factors, um, especially uh, on the 10th anniversary of um, Afghanistan and the invasion of Afghanistan. Um, And it was actually around um, the public acknowledgement of the number of civilian deaths in um, both Iraq and Afghanistan in order to facilitate a more effective peace building exercise post-exit. And it is unfortunate that at the moment, we don't have any accurate figures of the extent of civilian deaths in, uh, in Afghanistan. And wouldn't a public acknowledgement by the coalition and its allies of these figures, and knowledge, wouldn't that be a positive input to uh, a prospective peace building exercise it was left out of your talk, but I think it's quite an important factor. That's it.
0: Thank you for that. Should we
2: take a few
0: questions? Yes, we can collect. Okay, uh, the lady there. Yeah. There's a the mic coming.
3: Um, uh, thank you uh, for your talk. Um, I'm a student at Saras. I'm doing African politics. I Sorry, can you speak up? OK, everyone looks really lost. Um, I'm a student at SOAS. So I'm doing African <laughs> politics. Um, without, without sounding too much like a student from SOAS, what about when perhaps the motivations for intervention in the first place are more complicated and involve more aspects of uh, self-interest, perhaps, or commercial capturing of certain industries in that country? Doesn't that really need to be taken into consideration of exit strategies as well?
4: Thank you. Uh, question here. Thank you. My name is Anad Pak I'm a journalist uh, from Afghanistan. Uh, first of all, I would like, uh, that was a that was very comprehensive uh, speech and very informative. Just I would like to add that uh, when these people are in going to a country, they first jump, then they think. I think they first think, then they jump. Uh, For example, uh, in most of the case in Afghanistan particularly, there is nothing as institution as they were telling us in the beginning of the intervention. So do you think, is it premature or just face saving? saving? Elections are coming in America, elsewhere, economic crisis. Everybody is saving money. So they are trying just to leave Afghanistan to neighbors who butcher Afghans in 90s like animals so don't you worry that this thing may happen again thank you mm-hmm.
1: maybe I'll stop with these three yeah. but the, sorry, the, the last the question itself at the end of your comment don't I worry that uh, <coughs> they, will,
4: they will leave Afghan people to neighbors again as they left them in 1990 I guess chance because i from Afghanistan so oh, okay. alright maybe one more then
5: My name is Ahmad Javed and I'm working for the embassy here in uh, London and I'm working as commercial counselor in the embassy. I used to work for the government in the past six years, um, so I see things from inside uh, more in details. Uh, But first of all, thank you for the very insightful uh, presentation, Professor Copeland. Um, My question is, um, we talk about military presence for the coming five years. We talk about regional cooperation, trade and investment, a lot of these topics that have been discussed and uh, undertaken in many, many strategies developed in Afghanistan, the national strategy for Afghanistan, de- the, Afghan. What's going on? the Afghan Compact, and many of them. So in the presence of more than hundreds of international troops in Afghanistan, advisors, presence of the whole international community, we have failed to have a working public, government, uh, public uh, sector. There were, the corruption is something that's being discussed every day, and we know about it. The military, low capacity, non-functioning institutions in Afghanistan, they have, I mean, within the presence of the international community, we have, we have failed to have all these things in place. What kind of guarantee can these kind of researches or views give to the Afghan citizens that after five years with the presence of 20,000 or whatever number we're talking about of military, uh, U.S. or uh, NATO military forces in Afghanistan, we will have a functioning government and we'll get regional cooperation. We'll get everything in place in five years. What kind of guarantee is in place? Thank you.
1: Okay, why don't we, yes, if you don't mind, I'll we'll yes. stop mm-hmm. and uh, work backwards. The two last two <coughs> questions together. I mean, the simple answer to your question, what kind of guarantees? None. There, there are no guarantees that, the, that anything will be achieved, or for that matter, even that commitments will be honored, necessarily. But, and this relates to the question that was asked previously, and the point that I made d- during the lecture the considerations that drive the timing and nature of, of exit are more than just uh, sustainability sustainability issues uh, there are as you were indicating political considerations as, as well of, of various kinds you're alluding to domestic US considerations, budgetary pressures, uh, electoral pressures. And these are, these can't be ignored. And be, because of that, it's fair to say that there won't be any, first of all, there'll never be any guarantees that a strategy will succeed. But, but there won't even be a guarantee that the United States and other coalition partners will uh, honor entirely pledges that they may have made. But at the same time, I, I think it's going to be very difficult to turn their backs completely on what's happening for two reasons. I mean, one is that they have already invested uh, a lot, and it's, not, it's their credibility that is at stake, but it, it's also uh, their the relations with their allies regionally and also the, the coalition partners beyond the region think that it would be very very difficult for the United States to completely uh, turn its back and then there's there's also the the considerations that prompted engagement in the in the first place which is um, the insecurity in in the region and, and they don't want to leave a a black hole there now it doesn't mean to say as I said that uh, they will necessarily succeed but this uh, I, I don't think that we're going to see turning away completely, uh, we're going to see a very significant uh, scaling down and a recalibration of uh, engagement, uh, national and and intergovernmental. As far as the motivations for engagement are concerned, uh, they're often mixed. It's hard to think of any single intervention that is unmixed, and that's a fact of life. I think... We have to accept that, and we have to, on a case-by-case by by case basis, if we're talking about judging these interventions, we have to we have to assess whether the mix is an acceptable one. In, in the case of of Libya, there were ostensibly um, and uh, genuinely uh, humanitarian considerations, but they are obviously not the only considerations that explain uh, NATO. In intervention, and particularly um, Fr- French, British, and and U.S. intervention in in that country, uh, and this clearly does have an impact on the objectives. It has an impact on the way in which the uh, military campaign is going to be uh, fought, and also the uh, the 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 civilian side of the the operation. Uh, and I think that what's important is to try if, if you're talking about the standpoint of, of, uh, of a concerned public to to shape this to bring pressure to bear to uh, limit the pursuit of, of certain goals, to ensure that certain priorities are uh, maintained and, and respected and I think that that has succeeded to a very great extent in the case of of, of Libya, other powers on um, the Security Council, for instance, uh, helped to rein in, in some respects, Britain and uh, and, and the United Kingdom, um, China and and Russia, in in particular, ensuring that there wasn't too liberal an interpretation of the, the relevant Security Council uh, resolutions. But yes, it's inevitable that they're going to have they're going to colour uh, the nature of the uh, engagement, and uh, whether. A, an acknowledgement of the actual uh, civilian deaths, Afghanistan, Iraq. Uh, I mean, I think that is important. I think it's important for the record. Uh, I think it's important for peace building. Uh, and then one can ask oneself to what extent is peace building a significant component of uh, of exit? I think it is. So, and as I said, one one could enumerate many other. Uh, Activities, if you will, that uh, would contribute to um, to peace, peace building. But I think that this is important not just at exit. I mean, I think this is important uh, at every stage of the game. That there should be an an open recognition of uh, of, of the effects that an intervention is having on uh, on on civilians, on on the population um, uh, generally, and, and in uh, in the neighbourhood. So I wouldn't I wouldn't associate it only with exit.
0: Okay, we'll
6: uh, have the next round, Down here, question. I'm Najee Abbas from the East West Institute. Professor Kaplan, do you suspect that there is an insistence to impose a Iraq-like solution?
1: Iraq-like?
6: Exit plan from Afghanistan irrespective of the dissimilarities? And would we end up having a Lebanon, albeit more fragmented and divided on ethnic and sectarian lines?
0: Um, any other questions? OK, here.
1: Although well, they won't hear you in the back.
4: Um, you mentioned earlier on a little bit about um, the entry strategy and the motivations for going into Libya. I'd be very interested, based on what you've talked about so far, to look at what you see the future for Libya
0: to be, looking maybe five or ten years into the future, what you see might be happening, both looking at
4: regional players and international players.
0: Okay, and we'll take uh, one more. Uh, I'll take from over there, There, yeah, at the top, yeah. I'm
1: Uh, Professor Kaplan, thank you very much for your presentation. I'm Jakush Kabashi. I come from Macedonia. Uh, We in the Balkans have seen many international interventions in the past 10 to 15 years. Uh, But my question is somehow different. Seeing the experience of Somalia, uh, 10, 15 years after the first intervention, we still have a failed state there. And when we compare that uh, to the intervention in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, what is better? to stay in a country for 10, 15, 20 years and uh, keep it safe, or to leave fast and 20 years later to have no idea what we're going to do there. Thank you.
0: uh, I think I'll uh, use my position as a chair, actually. To ask you a question, I thought it was very interesting the way um, you talked about exit as on one hand as a process, but exit of not necessarily completely leaving. So I was just wondering, in in the research, it seems to me that you are reframing exit as a legitimate stay and sort of minimum necessary stay, which you didn't um, specify whether that would be military or civilian. We've seen in different places... Uh, uh, sort of external actors staying in different ways. So I was just wondering what would be that threshold if you like, when you would actually say, well, exit has happened despite the stay of some form of international presence?
1: Okay. I was promised easy questions. These are not easy questions. Um, Well, again, working backwards if I may, uh, in some ways, exit, a bit like beauty, is in the eye... Of the beholder, it's it's a it's the term that shall not be pronounced in um, development circles within the United Nations. Uh, it is a preoccupation within military circles in the United Nations. That is to say, peacekeepers. The peacekeepers are very concerned that they not be engaged in an operation of indefinite duration. They want to be able to get in, do the job, and go out. And the concern among the, within the development community in, in the UN, but not exclusively in the UN, is that any talk of exit, particularly for a fragile or a post-conflict state, sends the wrong signal, which is a signal of non-continuing uh, commitment. So, uh, what is what is an exit? I mean, I, my point is that even after exit, you're going to find, in all likelihood, uh, some residue quite significant uh, residue may may even be of international engagement, uh, and that's how it should be. Uh, I mean, I think that. Ideally, the decisions about when and at what level and what kind of engagement should be made uh, to the best extent possible on sustainability grounds. Can okay. a peace endure? And but the, the, the problem is that that question is one which eludes very easy uh, answer. And, and the UN actually wrestling with this question right now, how do we know a stable peace when we see it? Uh, obviously, uh, one, one way to test the sustainability is to leave and to see if the, stru- if the state collapses. But that's a little bit like uh, <laughs> suggesting that we test the soundness of a bridge by running 100 cars over it and seeing if the bridge stays in place. I don't think any, any engineer or public would accept that as a, uh, as a road test, uh, as an engineering test. So this is, a, this is a very difficult challenge. And, and um, I'm straying a little bit, but I think that it's relevant. Because the Peacebuilding Commission, in effect, is the last agency holding the ball now after peacekeeping. Well, I mean, the development, develop, development agencies are as well. They're wondering, they know how to get countries onto their agenda. When do they come off the agenda? They don't know, they don't know what to be looking for. So this is actually an area where quite a lot of org- investigation is <coughs> taking place within uh, organizations, the UN um, not alone. I don't know if that helps to explain mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. Better to stay or leave? Well, I mean, really, obviously, it depends on the, on the, um, on the case. Could, and I think there has to be a recognition that you can't always succeed. This was one of the things that the UN Security Council I think did come to terms with uh, in the um, early 2001. There was a quite extraordinary debate a a day long debate that took place on the Security Council about exits. A very open debate the likes of which really has never been seen before. And it was in light of the difficulties that the United Nations had had um, with some of its missions and not knowing how to cope with partial success or failure. And I think there's greater recognition now of the need to accept that you may not always be successful. And if that's the case, you may need to uh, think about withdrawing or reconfiguring your presence. But, as I said in my my lecture, if you do so, to do so in a way that tries to preserve what gains may have been achieved, so for instance, if as part of that effort, there's been a nascent political dialogue among, among competing parties, is it possible at a distance to try to sustain that dialogue? Rather than, again, to turn your back completely, uh, on the situation and let it just fall into an uh, abyss. Uh, but you know, again, situation will, will vary from uh, from case to case, so it's very, very difficult to generalize. I know a question was asked about Libya's future. I, I don't know, and I, again, I feel I'm not an expert on this part of the world. Uh, I think that there has been a lot of concern about the nature of the transitional government, uh, the the successor regime uh, to the Qaddafi regime, when you attach so much importance or base your intervention on humanitarian and human rights considerations, then it becomes very important to, you cannot ensure, but to take measures to facilitate or encourage the emergence of a successor regime that is going to be much more respectful of human rights and uh, and, and humanitarian law. And this is actually one of the concerns that there has been about Iraq. Uh, uh, How different are things actually in Iraq fundamentally? Maybe not so much with regard to to human rights but in terms of the political regime uh, is it any is there any, is it any less corrupt in important respects than the regime that it, uh, it replaced? It is—it is a—it is a, a, is a lot less tyrannical. There's no question about that. Uh, but uh, after so much blood and treasure having been expended, uh, this is uh, this is something that's uh, going to be a major preoccupation for the governments uh, that have been involved and for the, the critics who have been on the. Um, on the sidelines. But I I don't know. I mean, I think there'll be a lot of support uh, for uh, Libya, and I think it'll be actually easier to mobilize support for Libya than it had been, for instance, to mobilize support for Iraq after the invasion because of the divisiveness of that invasion. There are, of course, significant divisions in the international community around um, Libya, uh, but I, I think that there's much greater Support um, for putting Libya on uh, a, um, a, a, a solid ground and supporting the emergence of, a, of a, um, a successor regime that will be uh, able to govern effectively, competently, and in um, and, and respecting human, human rights. Uh, Iraq exit plan uh, from Afghanistan, similar to Iraq, I'm not quite sure what you had in mind. When you um, t- what, what aspects of the... Of
6: the decision was by General Patriot that we succeeded.
1: succeed you mean Do
6: you see such template working?
1: well I, I don't i mean this is where opinion is uh, divided the jury's out i mean there's a, um, a piece in the current issue of foreign affairs which is very optimistic about the prospects for a um, the, the development of capable national security forces army and police in afghanistan there are many people who challenge that view, particularly with regard to the police, which are thought to be um, corrupt uh, to a degree that the army perhaps is, is not. I mean, that is the template. That's always been the case, the, uh, if you will, the nationalization of the international intervention and the transfer of, of, of authority <coughs> and competences to uh, the national counterparts. Uh, that That is, that is the, the plan I don't know whether they. I mean, they have. They, they. Again, you read this piece, um, you get the impression that they've been successful in key areas in the country, and that that's all that really matters. They, they may not be able to succeed across the country, but as long as they're able to maintain that level of security in key areas, and a lot can be achieved from that. I don't know. I really am not expert enough to be able to say, but one thing you said I found also quite interesting, the declaration of success, because this is another thing one has to be very careful about. It's not uncommon. I talked about measuring progress towards the consolidation of peace or towards the achievement of stated goals. It's not at all uncommon to see declarations of success when there's no evidence it. Now, part of the problem is that it's the organisations that are conducting these operations that often are sitting in judgment of themselves and making these declarations. And I include the United Nations in this, by the way. Uh, I mean, we don't have really you no know, auditing bodies. Um, occasionally, we do. We have um, um, scrutiny committees, or we have uh, uh, special in investigative bodies that look into particular aspects that are impartial and independent but it's often not the case and there is a temptation to politicize analysis uh, because we have to be out by 2012 we have to ensure that we have measurable success by 2012 so we will do everything to uh, give the impression of of success so you get a kind of potemkin like um, success if, if, if you will and uh, th- that's, that's a temptation that all all organizations are afraid to succumb to um, uh, because they're going to be judged by the electorate they're going to be judged by member states m- making donations if they are for instance the United Nations. so there's a lot at stake with acknowledging uh, failure which puts them off from doing it very often.
0: Okay, and
3: I think we have time for one round of questions. So right here. Thank you very much, Professor Capon. My name is I'm a DPhil student in politics at St. Anthony's College at Oxford. Um, I find very interesting the idea that you're defining exit as a process. And in that line, I'd like to ask you if you could please elaborate a bit more on the agency side of the whole issue. Uh, More precisely, who decides when these um, set of objective criteria that you've set for for, um, transition and for exit are achieved? Is it the international organizations? Is it who are implementing the missions? Is it the governments who fund it? And what is the role of the government or the state which is hosting those missions? And what does that say about sovereignty eventually? Because if the implicit goal, of the mission is state building. When has a state building been su- successful enough so that the government can decide itself that the end, the exit has been reached? Or is it up to external actors to decide to confer sovereignty at the end of their mission? Thank you. Uh,
2: my name is Neil Barnett. I, um I work in London. Um, I was just wondering. As the balance of power in the world shifts increasingly rapidly to the south and to the east, to developing nations, um, do you see patterns of intervention around the world changing as a result? Mm-hmm.
4: Okay, and,
2: uh, one more. there. I was interested in your comment that resolutions often assisted by a convergence of interests by external states. And I was going to draw you out on that because, <coughs> excuse me, I often find it's an interesting question about which other states might benefit from the conflict and why the conflict is ongoing. So I thought I'd try and draw you out about strategies for getting third external states on board with resolving a conflict. Thank you. And
0: shall I
2: squeeze just one more over there? Uh, my question is about uh, the, the existence of uh, any exit strategy in Afghanistan should we call it uh, the policy or the strategy of entrance or exit? What, uh, what's going on in Afghanistan right now? Uh, looking at the scale of uh, the building of bases, American bases in Afghanistan, should we call it the exit strategy or the entrance strategy? Thanks.
1: <laughs> All right, uh, again, very nice set of questions. Uh, is it, well, What's going on, I don't know, in that regard. Uh, the United States, is it, does it envision a long-term presence in, in the region? And is that related to building a basis? As I said, I think that we can expect that there will be the need for some continuing international military presence, whether that's UN, peacekeeping force or a, a U.S. force. I think that that is, is really beyond dispute, and uh, I don't know, frankly, whether uh, what plans the U.S. has for uh, military deployment in, in that region, and how it fits in, into any broader strategy it might have about uh, its, its global reach. Uh, but this <coughs> relates to one of the earlier questions about for that matter, mixed motives of of intervention, or at, at every stage of engagement, states are are going to be motivated for different reasons to take the actions that they're they're taking, and uh, if it, it's quite conceivable that there there could be more, if you will, parochial interest, to do more with. Uh, Uh, US strategic interest than than only with respect to Afghanistan's interest but I I seriously do not know enough about uh, US thinking with regard to its future engagement in the region to be able to answer that satisfactorily Um, strategies for getting external states on board well I mean this is diplomacy and every um, trick in the book every uh, that a state may have and that will vary, of course, depending on uh, the, the 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 power of the state. Um, it's also a question of the capacity of the regional state. I mean, Pakistan has problems of various kinds. Um, uh, one is, um, I mean, it, it has it's, it's subject to so many different kinds of internal pressures makes it very, very difficult to... I mean, institutional and um, identity makes it very, very difficult for it to provide the kind of support for the United States in the region that the United States would like to see. And the other thing is that it isn't... um, fully sovereign state in the sense that it doesn't exercise sovereign control over all of its territory and that has been a problem from really the very beginning Uh, so there may be inherent difficulties that prevent even with the best of uh, resources and obviously Pakistan has been the recipient of quite significant uh, uh, US military and, and economic assistance and even that hasn't always been enough to um, um, bring it on board because of these these countervailing pressures but also because of limited um, competences in some respects but you know, in other cases I think we've been a lot more successful with respect for instance to Serbia uh, in the Western Balkans and there, again there are all kinds of reasons a lot of these also indigenous um, but I, I, I think it would be difficult to argue that they're not related Uh, in any way to uh, the external uh, inducements and uh, threats um, that uh, have been issued by, for instance, the the European Union, most significantly. Um, Patterns of intervention, are they changing or will they be changing? I mean, that's quite an interesting question, particularly as uh, many states, leading states in the global south, historic uh, proponents of non-intervention are claiming a rightful seat on the uh, Security Council. India, Brazil uh, for instance, um, even Germany for that matter, not from the global south, but uh, uh, was um, not in, in any way enthusiastic about the engagement in in, uh, in Libya. A lot of soul searching there. But it, it, is, it is quite Possible to judge from the kinds of reactions we've had from uh, these countries that they um, uh, they they will seek, um, in some cases have sought, to uh, um, ensure that the, the United States, in particular, but leading powers more generally, are are more restrained, if you will, and. In the interventions. I mean, they've always been very concerned about this kind of slippery humanitarian slope. India very reluctant to embrace initially the responsibility to protect, seeing it as the um, uh, it's kind of a, a Trojan horse for intervention by the by the West. And this has a very very long uh, history. So as these countries are in a position perhaps to assert themselves more internationally, we may see that uh, these these views are more influential. On the other hand, and this was a problem that I think Germany experienced, when responsibility as a major power is um, in, entails a willingness or is thought to entail a willingness to take certain actions and as a major power you're unable to accept um, responsibility for taking those actions, accept to take those actions, uh, then that for some calls into question your credentials as a, as a responsible power. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. And uh, your question, very interesting question, um, who decides, well, I think uh, it really would be very, very interesting. I mean, keep thinking about it topics for doctoral dissertations, but uh, I mean to, to really unpack some of these cases and to see at critical junctures um, uh, who was responsible for taking what decisions and I mean for instance it's really quite interesting if you investigate the East Timor case. East Timor, the United Nations came under a lot of criticism because after having invested so much, this was a state, a newly established state, which the United, state, United Nations was the, the first um, government of, in effect, uh, and then within a matter of a few years, um, while the UN is still there, there is this eruption of violence, and many people blame the United Nations for having left <coughs> prematurely. Uh, but if you look at the record, you'll see, as I alluded to in, in my, my talk, the Secretary-General made impassioned appeals to member states not to redeploy their peacekeeping forces, and um, and uh, member states were under pressure, however, because of limited scarce assets, to put them elsewhere. Uh, But it's the United Nations that comes to be tarred with uh, having managed, if you will, the conflict there uh, poorly. Now, I'm not saying that they are entirely um, blameless because one thing that's quite interesting is that we now know at no time, in the case of East Timor anyway, when again the United Nations was in complete control, at no time did they undertake a conflict analysis. In other words, at no time did they look to see what are the conflict dynamics in this country. They always assumed the threat came from Indonesia and that there was a residual threat from the pro-Indonesian forces who for the most part had left but it wasn't until violence flared up that they became particularly sensitive to the conflict dynamics within the the population itself Um, but uh, the question of the role of the host country is a very interesting one and it's one which um, again worthy I think of examination it's one with which the Peacebuilding Commission itself has to deal because the assessments for progress within the context of these um, uh, strategic frameworks for peace building the assessments are joint assessments but they're not just joint assessments between the United Nations and the host government, they're joint assessments between the United Nations host government and other other institutions (coughs) within the country including opposition parties and And that's very important because you can imagine how if one of your your, um, benchmarks is, say, power sharing arrangements as a way of overcoming a divide within a country, if you leave it to the government to decide when we have achieved satisfactory power sharing, uh, they have an interest. They have an interest which is going to arguably color their analysis. But if you then bring in the, say opposition to the mix it, it it creates a counterbalance and in the case of Burundi at least um, it has been a very very interesting dynamic um, but what, what I'm looking to see is when the opposition is going to be between the country itself and say the United Nations and when um, the uh, United Nations is going to find itself in the awkward position of not being able to accept that uh, what the host country is Saying about its capacity or about the progress that it has made. And as I'm sure you know, it's very, very difficult to criticize member states. Um, I mean, it's, it's quite a different matter, I think, for donor governments who um, have relations with, with states. But for the United Nations itself to be critical of a, um, a state, uh, it's, it's, it's much harder. So um, I can't say that that situation yet has arisen in the context at least of the Peacebuilding Commission. But I think that the potential uh, is, is there. But I, I think the, the, um, ultimately, you're absolutely right, there has to be buy-in and ultimately that process has to be driven by the host country because otherwise, uh, how can you say that uh, sovereignty has been fully <coughs> restored or that they're uh, capable of governing themselves?
0: Well, thank you very much uh, for your thought-provoking lecture and for being generous with your comments. And I'm sure that uh, no one who is here tonight will think the same when they hear the word and discussion about exit on radio or in the papers. We are looking forward to your next book. Thank you very thank much. You. For-